get into who can share the most dirt on who, because I'm not sure who would win that. But I was happy when she asked me to come speak, and it was, it was nice because this is the first time I've seen her in her official capacity as a pastor. I've only known her through ministry in different places at churches, um, but uh, it's really cool for me to see the congregation that God's called her to lead and to serve. Um, this, this a lot. I, I was raised United Methodist. I'm a preacher's kid. I've grown up in the Methodist Church, and it was in South Georgia. And one of the things that I've noticed is that whenever I walk into a Methodist church that's let's say older than 50 years, if the church has been around for 40, 50 years or longer, it has a unique smell to me. And I don't know, I can't describe it. It's not a bad smell, and it's not a good smell. It's just a Methodist smell. I don't know if it's the hymnals or the robes or the wax that they put on all of the woodwork, but all Methodist churches have this smell, and it always takes me back to childhood to the churches that I grew up in, uh, because most of the churches that Dad served that I grew up in were older Methodist churches. One just celebrated its hundred and. Uh, 70th year or something like that. I mean, just, I don't know what it is. I'm going to find out one day. But it it always brings me back because smell, the idea of smell, I've read, and I'm not a scientist, I'm a preacher and a Bible geek, and uh, I think, but what I've read is that smell is the strongest of our senses, or it's the one that's most linked to our memory. If you, when you smell something, it, it, it creates the, some, sometimes a, a visceral reaction, either a really good one, like if you smell a really good perfume, uh, or a really bad one. We can all think of terrible smells. When, speaking of my parents, uh, my dad one time, I was, I guess I was in high school, middle school maybe, and my mom, she loves to work in the yard. My mom has a green thumb, and she calls it playing in the dirt. She doesn't grow things for the sake of, uh, feeding us or you know selling them or she just likes to be outside and she likes to dig around in the dirt and she likes to make rock gardens and flower beds and all of those things and so one day after working in the yard for a long time she came in and my dad who doesn't always have the best social graces uh, he came in I guess he gave her a hug or she gave him a hug or something and he kind of sniffed her and he said Diane that's her name she said Diane you smell like a first grader <laughs> and what he meant was, you know how if you have kids, you know, when they run and play and get sweaty and they, they just have this little stinky kid smell. I think she slapped him. I don't remember. She probably smacked him. Uh, but I laughed and we tease him about it to this day. And whenever somebody, you know, smells funny, we're like, oh, you smell like a first grader. Well, it's, there's, there's a sense. Smell is a powerful sense that we have, that we've been given. And God knows that. He created us that way. And throughout Scripture, we don't always notice this up front, but throughout Scripture, smells are spoken of, are are appealed to, are used by God, even to communicate things about himself. So Amy mentioned that I I focus on the Old Testament, and I really do. I, I fell in love with the Old Testament in seminary. I think the Old Testament is the least read part of your Bible, if you're honest with yourselves. But to me, it's the most foundational part of your Bibles. It's the Bible that Jesus had. You know, Jesus never had a New Testament. Uh, Paul, Peter, James, John, Jude, they never had a New Testament, ever. All of their scripture was the Old Testament. And the Old Testament informed who they were, and it built them up as their foundation of who they were. And so I want to look at the Old Testament today for a second. I want to look at a passage that you probably don't get heard preached a lot. And it's an Exodus chapter 30. 
So if you have a Bible, which you do have a Bible because there's one in front of you in the rack on the pew, right? Right? This is the Methodist church. That's how it goes. Uh, there's a Bible in front of you. So take that Bible out and turn it to the second book in the Bible. Turn it to the book of Exodus. And when you get to the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible, turn it to chapter 30, near the end of that book. Because that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at this, this chapter tucked away that nobody ever preaches on, at least that I've ever heard, but I think has a pretty profound thing to teach us. So when you get to Exodus chapter 30, those of you that are actually turning to Exodus chapter 30, look at verse 22 of Exodus chapter 30. Let me set the stage for you. This is Israel has come out of Egypt. Israel has been redeemed by God out of slavery for 400 years. Longer than America has been a nation, Israel was enslaved. 400 years. During those 400 years, their knowledge of God dwindled to almost nothing. They knew roughly that they were tribes within a people called Israel, who was, which was named after one of their ancestors. And they knew that his grandfather was a guy named Abraham. And God had made a promise to Abraham about something involving land and blessing. And that's about it. So God calls Moses. This is a short uh, condensing of the book of Exodus, but God calls Moses, and he, and he takes Moses, who was raised in Egypt, but he was an Israelite, calls him out for 40 years, has him pastoring flock, excuse me, shepherding flocks in the wilderness, in what's now today modern northwest Saudi Arabia, and he has him shepherding those flocks in that land called Midian, and one day he's shepherding those flocks, and he comes to this bush. No big deal. Shepherds see bushes all the time. This bush is on fire. No big deal. Shepherds see brush fires all the time. This fire is not going out, and the bush is not being consumed. That's weird. So Moses goes over, and he looks at the bush, and from out of this bush, God speaks to him. The God of his ancestor, Abraham, speaks to him, and he says, Moses, you're going to go, and you're going to lead my people out, out of slavery, to the most powerful empire in the world, and you're going to bring them back to this mountain where you are right now, and on this mountain, I'm going to teach you how to worship me and how to be the people that I called your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather Abraham to be. So Moses does that. Actually, Moses doesn't do a ton of it. God does most of it. And Moses brings them back, these tens of thousands of Israelites, back to the base of this mountain. And on that mountain, God comes down in fire. Whenever God shows up in the Bible, almost always fire is somewhere around God, God is a consuming fire, is what we read in Scripture. His nature is holiness and its purity, and it's, and it's a burning blast furnace type purity. And so when God shows himself frequently in Scripture, there's always fire and smoke and cloud and thunder and earthquake and all of these things that accompany it because God is getting his people to, to visually and audibly understand him and to, to grasp who he is. So... God appears, he comes down in fire on Mount Sinai. Israel's camped around the base of this mountain. God comes down, Moses goes up, they meet at the top of the mountain for 40 days, 40 nights. Moses and God hanging out. God speaking to Moses, this is how you are going to lead these people. This is the type of people you're going to be. This is how they will worship me. And through all of this, the promise that I made to Abraham will come to fruition. 
And the promise that God made to Abraham was that he would take Abraham's descendants and through Abraham's descendants, God would reach the world. Through the descendants of Abraham, God would take all of the nations of the world and draw them back to himself to knowledge of God. All the nations that had gone astray, that had gone into their pagan worship, that had invented their own gods, had ignored the one true God, had come up with all kinds of ways to be idolatrous, to follow their own way. That's the nations that God wanted to reach. And he was going to do it through Israel. So he called them. He assembled them. He brought them out of slavery. He saved them. This is where all our modern terminology comes from. He saved them. And then he gave them his covenant, his law, his commandments, his binding agreement. He married them. That's what the scripture speaks about. What happened at Mount Sinai is God marrying his bride, Israel. During this point, this is when all of the stuff in Exodus is happening. Like everything after chapter 20, except for maybe chapter 32, is all of this conversation and things that God's telling Moses to tell the people. And in this, he tells them how to live, how to have laws, how to have a society, how to build his temple, or excuse me, his tabernacle, how to make the garments for the priests, how to worship, all of these things. And then we come to chapter 30 in Exodus, and God says in verse 22, Then the Lord said to Moses, Take the following fine spices, 500 shekels of liquid myrrh, now, let me pause here, because most of you, when you're, you know, Amy talked about measuring out to bake a cake. I'm pretty sure you don't bake your cakes using shekels. Most of you probably don't have a shekel measuring cup in your house. If you do, that's weird. Uh, but 500 shekels is a lot. 500 shekels is about 12 and a half pounds. So imagine 12 and a half pounds of whatever liquid. That's how much he's talking about, okay? So 500 shekels, 12 and a half pounds of liquid myrrh. Myrrh is one of the most expensive uh, spices in the ancient world, by the way. You know, when Jesus was the nativity scene and the wise men come and they bring their gifts, and one of those gifts is myrrh, because myrrh was a kingly gift. It was for royalty. It was not cheap. So 12 and a half pounds, a huge bucket of this liquid myrrh. Take half that much, that is 250 shekels, so six and a quarter pounds, of fragrant cinnamon, 250 shekels of fragrant cane, 500 shekels of cassia, which is some weird spice in the ancient world, again, that we don't have laying around, all according to the sanctuary shekel, so like not your own measurement, but according to the standard measurement, and a hen of olive oil. Again, most of us don't bake with hens, but a hen, H-I-N, is roughly a gallon. So, 12 and a half pounds of all this stuff, six and a quarter, six and a quarter, 12 and a half, and then a gallon of olive oil. So this is a big vat of stuff. Verse 25, make these into a sacred anointing oil, a fragrant blend, the work of a perfumer. It will be the sacred oil. Then use it to anoint the tent of meeting, the ark of the testimony, that's the ark, like the actual, remember Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the thing with the wings and the angels looking at each other that melted people's face off? That's what this is. There's no face melting, but that's what the, the ark. So anoint all of that stuff, the table, all its articles, the lampstand and its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering, all of its utensils and the basin with its stand. So basically everything inside the center of this tabernacle 
that God's just spent 10 chapters telling them how to build. Anoint this stuff, meaning pour it on, rub it on, smear it on, dab it on, wipe it on, however you want to describe it. Cover this stuff with this oil, this perfume that you're making. You shall consecrate them so they will be most holy and whatever touches them will be holy. Anoint Aaron, that's Moses' brother, his sons, and consecrate them so they may serve me as priests. Say to the Israelites, this is to be my sacred anointing oil for generations to come. Do not pour it on men's bodies. Do not make any oil with the same formula. It is sacred and you are to consider it sacred. Whoever makes perfume like it and whoever puts it on anyone other than a priest must be cut off from his people. So God's very clear on this. Here's the formula. Here's what you're going to do with it. You're going to anoint everything inside the tabernacle and you're going to anoint the priests. And that is it. Nothing else will get this anointing. Nothing else will get this oil put on it. Now, we don't use oil in our day is seen as kind of a bad thing. If somebody's got oily skin, ooh, that's kind of gross. Or, you know, somebody has oily hair, time to shampoo. If, you know, if we talk about auto, I don't want to eat all that oily food. You know, it's bad for cholesterol, whatever. But in the ancient world, oil was a prized possession. In the world of the ancient Near East, oil was a good thing. And oil was what you put on. Because think, this is roughly 1400 B.C. Some people would say closer to 1200 B.C. It doesn't matter. This is a long time before Jesus. It's an even longer time before deodorant. People stank back in this day. People stank. They worked in the fields. They shepherded flocks. They worked around animals. If you work around animals, you know animals stink. You start to smell like your animals to the point you don't even notice it. You have friends that are veterinarians that can work with animals, and, and, and you go in the back, and it's just overpowering how stinky it is. And they're used to it. My grandfather, he raised chickens in South Georgia. He would work in the chicken houses all day. I couldn't even go near the chicken houses without wanting to throw up because it stank so bad. He didn't even notice it. You get used to smells. And so what God was, uh, what, what people in the ancient world would do is, in lieu of deodorant, they would use fragrant oils to keep their skin from getting all dry and itchy. Rub oil on it. To keep their hair from getting head lice. Put oil in it. Kills the lice. So oil had this cleansing. It, had, it made things shiny. It made things smooth. It made things soft. It made things smell good. It was a comforting thing. And what God is saying is all of the people, they, they use oil all the time. And they cover their bodies. They cover their hair. They anoint their houses. They do all this stuff to make things smell better. This oil is not to be used anywhere except for the tabernacle and the priests who serve there. And then to drive home the point, verse 34, Then the Lord said to Moses, Take fragrant spices, gum resin, anica, galbanum, and pure frankincense, all in equal amounts, and make a fragrant blend of incense, the work of a perfumer. It's to be salted and pure and sacred. Grind some of it to powder, place it in front of the testimony in the tent of meeting, where I will meet with you. It shall be most holy to you. Do not make incense with this formula for yourselves. Consider it holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to enjoy its fragrance must be cut off from his people. 
So the oil that the priests were anointed with was sacred, was special, was unique. The incense that those priests would take into the tabernacle and offer before God with all of the sacrifices of the people was unique, and it was holy. Nobody's tent should smell like this stuff. Nobody could have some of this and take it and and put it in their own home. Nobody could use God's anointing oil and put it on themselves so that everybody would know, oh, they smell nice. Nobody was allowed to do that, and the penalty was severe. If you do it, you are cut off from your people. You are no longer part of Israel. You are out of here. Now, that's pretty severe. What it tells us is God wanted this realm, this area of priests and tabernacle and worship to smell different than every other smell in Israel. The priests who were working in the tabernacle would be anointed with this stuff. They would burn the incense with this stuff. When they went home, even after they took off their priestly garments, even after they you know, took, took a bath or, 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 or got rid of their implements or left the tabernacle, that smell would remain on them. You would know who a priest who had been serving in the presence of God was by smell. If a priest was coming to visit... You would know it. If a priest had been to visit, you would know it. You would, there would be something different about priests who served in the tabernacle than anybody else in Israel. And God was preserving that. Smell is a powerful thing. It's a powerful sense. And even, even if it's something that we overlook a lot, But even smell is used by God to communicate something about who he is. And in Exodus 30, what he's communicating, and through the whole book of Exodus, and Leviticus, and Deuteronomy, and Numbers, what God's communicating is he is different than us. And he is different than the gods that we create. And he's different than the gods that Israel's neighbors worshipped. And he's different than anything anyone can possess or own. He's different than all of those things. That's what holy means. Holy means different. It means set apart and different. So God was ingraining in Israel over centuries, you know, day after day of priests entering the service, burning the incense, leaving, smelling like this, this unique uh, aroma of being in the presence of God. He was different. He was holy. And these priests would communicate that to the people, not just through what they taught them. Priests were the teachers in Israel. Not just through how they led them in worship. Priests were the worship leaders in Israel. Not just through receiving their sacrifices and giving them back the remains of it. uh, Priests were the butchers in Israel. Not through just those things alone, what they did and what they said and how they dressed, but also how they smelled. In every way, priests were to communicate something about God to their surrounding culture. Okay, so fun history lesson. Now we know what a shekel is. Big deal. What does it matter? Well, this went on for a couple hundred years, about 1,400 years. And 
all through this period of time, when, when the priests were, even after the tabernacle came to be stationary and to rest in one place, and then a temple was built in Jerusalem that took over what the tabernacle had been, and it still had its incense, and it still had an altar, and it still had its priests, and they still smelled different. Even after all of that, there was a promise in the Old Testament that one day, God was going to make a new covenant with Israel. Because this covenant that he's making right here in Exodus, that we're reading about right here at the beginning, when they are coming out of Egypt as a nation, this covenant would fail because Israel would break the covenant. Israel would disobey God. Israel would not do the instructions that God had given them, and he would take hundreds of years to send prophet after prophet after prophet to call them back to keeping this agreement. And they never did. Even after he wiped them out of the land, took them off in captivity to Babylon, and then brought back a faithful remnant back into the land, they still never fully kept this covenant. And God promised through his prophets in the Old Testament that one day he would make a new covenant. He promised it through a guy named Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31. He promised it through a guy named Ezekiel at the same time in Ezekiel chapter 36. He made this promise to Israel. He said, one day I'm going to make a new covenant with you. And it's not going to be like the one I made at Mount Sinai. It's not going to be about keeping laws written on stone tablets. It's not going to be about these rituals that you perform, that you come to the uh, one central temple to have performed. But rather, I'm going to take all of that, all of the essence of who I am, all of this idea of holiness, all of this idea of sacrifice and, and uh, atonement and salvation and all of that stuff that I've been doing for centuries in and through you. I'm going to take that. And I'm going to actually put that in you. I'm going to put that inside of you because I'm going to come dwell within you. And it's going to be a new covenant. So all of the things that this old covenant pointed towards, all of the things that these sacrifices, all of the things that these rituals, all of the things that the clothing, even the things like how you smell, all of that stuff is going to be transformed and internalized. But the purpose is still going to be the same. The purpose is still going to be the same. I'm still going to use the descendants of Abraham to reach the world. I'm just going to open the gates a little bit to who those descendants of Abraham are. And I'm going to invite in a bunch of people who aren't physically descended from Abraham, but who have the same faith of Abraham. And that faith is in the Messiah of Israel, who I'm going to send. All of this is big picture Bible story. So by the time you get to the New Testament, the first Christians, they knew this. I mean, this was their identity. They, they saw themselves as continuing the promises that God had made to Abraham and continuing the identity of the people that God had called in Exodus. They knew themselves as a continuation, not a replacement and not a plan B or a, or a substitute, but the continuation of everything God had been doing in Israel. And so when Peter, Jesus' disciple, his main disciple, the rock on whom he's going to build his kingdom, when Peter writes to Christians, 1,400 and something years after that passage in Exodus, he writes to Christians who are scattered around the empire, and he tells them who they are and how they should live in this pagan world that they're surrounded by, in this Greco-Roman society that doesn't have the same God, that doesn't have the same laws, that doesn't agree with their ethics or their morals, that has a whole different system of government. 
And when Peter writes to Christians who are to live within that society, this is what he tells them in 2 Peter, excuse me, in 1 Peter chapter 2, the second chapter of Peter's letter, he says in verse 9, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God so that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his wonderful light. Once you weren't a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of his visitation. Peter takes the identity of the priests in the Old Testament and he looks at New Testament believers, his fellow believers, and he says, that's what you are. You are a holy priesthood. The Old Covenant, in the Old Covenant, priests were a subset within Israel. And they represented Israel to God and God to Israel. They were the intermediary. You wanted access to God, you wanted to worship God, you went through a priest. You involved a priest in the tabernacle with all of the specifications. It was how God set it up. But God promised in the new covenant, I'm going to pour out my spirit on everyone. All of you will become a kingdom, a nation, a people who are priests. In other words, the role of the priests in the Old Testament is going to be expanded and given to everyone in the New Testament. You have Baptist friends, they kind of harp on this. The priesthood of all believers is what they call it. And they're not wrong on that. Um, they're, no, they're not wrong on a lot of things. They're, but that, that's, that's what they're talking about. When you hear somebody talk about the priesthood of all believers, that's what they're saying is that in the New Testament, through Jesus, the role of the priest has now been given to everyone who follows Jesus. So what does that have to do with anything? Well, in the Old Testament, the priests were to be unique. The priests smelled different. They dressed different. They talked different. They did different things. They were, they were different. There was something about them that was different, even down to how they smelled. In the new covenant, all of God's people now are called to be different because we are all priests to this pagan world that we're in. Whether it's here in America, which is a pagan nation, let's not kid ourselves, whether it's over in India with my brothers and sisters there, which is definitely a pagan nation, whether it's in Saudi Arabia, whether it's in Israel, whether it's in Great Britain, wherever it is that we find ourselves, we are in a place where God is calling us to be priests, to represent him to those people. So the question is, how do we smell? Do we smell different? Do people know that we're a Christian? Not by what t-shirts we wear, not by the bumper stickers on our car, not by the radio stations that we listen to, not by who we vote for. Do they know that we're Christians through our lives? 
If someone has been around you, do they notice a difference between you and everybody else? That's the question that Scripture presents us with. Look what Paul, Peter's colleague, when he was writing to a church in Corinth. Now, Corinth was the most pagan city in the ancient world. Corinth was so wicked that the verb to Corinthianize, that was an actual verb, and it meant to become utterly debauched, utterly depraved. So I just, uh, last week I was in Las Vegas, and people call Vegas Sin City. Vegas is Sesame Street compared to Corinth, all right? You combine Vegas and Bangkok and the red light district in Amsterdam and New Orleans at Mardi Gras, put it all together, throw in a little Myrtle Beach if you want to, mix it all together, and you might come close to something that resembles Corinth, all right? Corinth, when people talk about, oh, our society, we're going downhill, we're just, it's as bad, no, 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 no. We aren't even close to what Corinth was. And to the church in Corinth, Paul wrote two letters. And in one of those letters, in 2 Corinthians, his second letter he wrote to him, he's talking to these people in this pagan culture, the same time frame that Peter was writing to Christians throughout the world, and he says, Thanks be to God, this is verse 14 of chapter 2, Thanks be to God who always leads us in triumphal procession in Christ, like who always leads us on a parade, like God is showing us off, God is leading us in triumph, and through us spreads everywhere the fragrance of the knowledge of Him. Through us spreads everywhere the fragrance, you can put that in quotes because he's using a metaphor, the fragrance of the knowledge of God. For we are to God the aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we're the smell of death. To the other, the fragrance of life. In Old Testament Israel, if your house was in order, if you were following the laws, if you didn't have unclean foods and you weren't breaking God's commandments and you didn't, uh, you know, you weren't harboring things that the Lord said, these things won't take place in Israel. If all your ducks were in a row and you were following God, then the smell of a priest was a welcome smell. You were excited. Hey, come, come in, have a meal. We're happy to have you here. Oh, there's a priest visiting. This is great. But on the other hand, you were a covenant breaker. If you were not keeping the laws of God, if you were not following God's instructions, if you were not living as God had called Israel to live, then the smell of the priest was not a good smell. It was, it was a scary thing. It was a, it was a smell of incoming judgment because priests would also determine who was in and who was out in terms of covenant keeping. Well, it's like that with us as believers. Our smell, our aroma, our fragrance that we give off to some is going to be a smell of life. It's going to be welcome. It's going to be refreshing. But to others who are hell-bent on being hell-bent, it's going to be the smell of death. It's going to be, it's going to be worse than a first grader. It's going, to be, uh, the, the, it's, it's, it's going to be a smell that makes them turn their noses that makes them want to get away from us or get us away from them. Our job isn't to worry about that. Our job is to just smell like Jesus. Our job is to just give off the fragrance of the aroma of the knowledge of God 
And how it's received is how it's received. So the question that we'll leave today, and, and, and as you think about in the coming weeks, in the coming years, and throughout your life, the question that you can ask yourself on a daily basis, how do I smell? When that guy cut me off in traffic, and I waved at him with a colorful salute, how did that smell? When I went out to eat, and, and the waiter wasn't as fast as I wanted them to be, or the waitress mixed up my food order, and I yelled at him, or I snapped at him, or I didn't tip them, how does that smell? When I'm firing off a message on Facebook or Twitter or sending an email to somebody that I'm mad at, how's that going to smell? These are the questions that the priests, New Covenant priests, that we ask ourselves on a daily basis. These are the things that govern how we live. How does that smell? When we gather for worship, how does that smell? Are we just here because we have to be here? Sing a few songs because that's what we've always done. Sit in this pew because that's our family's pew. We've always sat here. Park in this spot. That's my spot. How does that smell? That's the question that we'll leave with today. How do we smell? I can't answer it. Only you and God can answer it. Let's pray. Lord, you...